Welcome to HBTV. I'm Harry Binswanger, the HB in HBTV. I'm a philosopher who advocates Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. Today being Halloween, it's appropriate that we take up the zombie philosophy of Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant's whole philosophical system is uh, based upon destroying human life. It's based upon destroying the mind and destroying values. So today we're discussing the value side of it. I'd already discussed the central fallacy in his epistemology. For those of you who uh, want a reminder, haven't heard it, he considers in Ayn Rand's phrase identity to be the disqualifier of consciousness. If you're aware somehow, you're not aware. And I liken this to saying, if you drive to Chicago on some specific route, you don't get to Chicago. You only get to Chicago as reached by that route. I'm not going back into that, but he has a very uh, elaborate, tricked up, obfuscatory scheme to reach the conclusion you can't know anything. Your mind is incompetent. What we can do is say, if you are going along with your fellow men, well, that's the best you can do. So let's call that being logical, being objective. Again, Ayn Rand calls his switch the switch of the collectively subjective for the objective. So it destroys objectivity, if you agree with him, and he's going to destroy ethics in what I'm going to discuss today. I thought he was bad. I thought he was disgusting. But I had too nice a view of him. I went back through my notes, back through what he says, and it is a Halloween-style celebration of death as such. But it doesn't look that way. How could he have gotten the influence he has? He's the most influential philosopher in 200 years. How come? Because he writes this horrible, cramped, cribbed prose and rarely lets the mask drop to show what he's really about. There are a couple of instances where he does that. In the introduction to the second edition of the Critique of Pure Reason, for instance, he famously said, I found I had to deny reason to make room for faith. In that same work, he suggests that doing this has enabled him to come up with a good ethical system, namely Christianity, the Christian ethical system. Well, it's Christianity on steroids. Christianity is kind of touches this low, as I'll quote something from a pope. But Christianity is generally, and particularly in 20th century America, 
very watered down and mild compared to Kant. But Kant is the man who saved religion from science and saved Christian ethics from reason. Now, since saving it means keeping it alive as a zombie to destroy everything that's living and right and real, the word saving is perhaps the wrong thing to use. He staved off the collapse, the total collapse of religion and religious ethics. And he did so on the basis of very tricky, intricate reasoning, ultimately, ultimately resting on nothing, on nothing but his feelings. And we'll see that. So let's dive into his ethics by starting with his approach to ethics. He says the basis, all these quotes are from his works on ethics. The main one is the metaphysical principles of virtue and most of my quotes today will be from when I took this in college, I, I changed the uh, title. It's the fundamental principles of the metaphysics of morals. And being the wag that I am, I cross out F-U-N-D so that it reads the A-mental principles of the metaphysics of morals, the mindless principles of morals. And that's what it is. So I'm not going to identify where these quotes are from. If you want, I can you know, track them down, but I type them in so I would be able to go through them in the right order without going to the books. Sometimes there'll be some dot, dot, dotting, elliptically removing a few words, but in no case do I change the meaning. And you can uh, search for these quotes on the web and find out what the full original wording is. Number one, the basis of obligation. Morality is about what you should do, obligation, right? The basis of obligation must not be sought in the nature of man or in the circumstances in the world in which he is placed, but a priori simply in the conceptions of pure reason. Pure reason is this emasculated, gutted parody of reason that he comes up with in the critique of pure reason. It's reason regarded as, in effect, a mystical thing. It's reason severed from senses, reason without perception of reality, pure reason. What makes it impure? Dirty matter, the senses, things of this world, money, sex, enjoyment. So no, it's pure reason. And a priori means independent of any sensory perceptual experience. So we're going to get obligation, not from looking at reality, not from anything we perceive or introspect, but from logical twists in our own mind severed from reality. Why?
because he says, oh, if you let in any of this material stuff, you bring perception and matter in, it's going to be subjective. We'll see some quotes about what he thinks subjective means. And it turns out to mean has contact with reality. But that's what I mean by he has no argument. Is really his argument for a priori pure reason as the base of morality. It, well, there's going to be something he says on the side, but there's basically nothing. It's if you don't accept what I'm saying, you're a subjectivist. That's his argument. Quoting again, in order that an action should be morally good, it is not enough that it conform to the moral law, which we get through pure reason, but it must also be done for the sake of the law. Another quote, a good will is good. A good will, he correctly states that morality has to do with choice. I mean, he doesn't put it that nicely, but that where you can't avoid doing something, there's no morality, although he will cheat on that in the end. So morality concerns what you choose, how you use your free will. In order that uh, an action should be morally good, it is not enough that it conform to the moral law, but it must also be done for the sake of the law. A good will is good, a good will, a choice, is a good choice is good not because of what it performs or affects, not by its aptness for the attainment of some proposed end, but simply by virtue of the volition. That is, it is good in itself. You know, the Christians say virtue is its own reward because it's too clear that there's no reward on earth for uh, living the Christian ethics. It's an anti-this earth ethics. But they say virtue is its own reward. Kant goes one step further as he generally does. Rewards stink. Do it because it's your duty, not because you'll get anything out of it. And to emphasize that it doesn't have to do with the effects of your choices. He says, even if it should happen that this will, this choice, should wholly lack power to accomplish its purpose, if with its greatest efforts it should yet achieve nothing, then like a jewel, it would still shine by its own light as a thing which has its whole value in itself. Its usefulness or fruitlessness can neither add to nor take away anything from this, this value. The good is just good in and of itself. It's the extreme of the intrinsic theory of the good. It has nothing to do with what you want. It has nothing to do with your nature. It has nothing to do with what you need. It has nothing to do with what you're trying to accomplish by your actions. It's just because it's your duty. If you do it because it's your duty, 
If you just say, seek Heil and obey the Fuhrer, that is good. Do I exaggerate? No. The Nazis were Kantians. Comes right out of Kant. Do your duty, obey. Don't think, don't question. Now, here's something I found that I had actually forgotten until I prepared this. It's kind of like an almost argument for the idea that happiness values life have nothing to do with morality. Here's the argument. It, it's rewriting the introductory section here to make it clearer. If nature had, this is me actually as a preface, if nature had meant life and happiness to be our purpose, which nature does through natural selection, which he didn't know about, if nature had meant life and happiness to be our purpose, we would act by instinct. Now here's the quoted part. Nature would not only have taken on herself the choice of the ends, but also of the means. And with wise foresight would have entrusted both to instinct. Interesting idea, isn't it? If uh, nature, if um, we were, if natural selection or nature we're concerned with our survival and happiness, they would have given us an instinct to buy Microsoft stock uh, when it was low. They would have given us an instinct to uh, live in the United States rather than in a lesser country. It would have given us the instinct to buy life insurance. It would have given us the instinct to eat a balanced diet, and that it could almost do. Uh, it would have given us an instinct to get annual medical checkups. It would have given us an instinct to do all the things that we think are sensible. Now, for um, saving Kant's face a little bit, he's writing this in 1775, 76, approximately, somewhere in the late 1700s. When life wasn't that complicated, you didn't have life insurance. You didn't have a choice of countries. Well, you did, but not, a lot of countries, it just wasn't that possible to emigrate. You didn't have uh, the choice to buy stock on the stock exchange, not too much. So you picture a farmer, you know, but there, what about that? You give you an instinct to find seed and plant it and, and plow, giving instinct to know what seed to use and given instinct to water the, I mean, what view of nature is he dealing with here? It's nature would be a mind. It's only a mind that can figure out plant in the spring to harvest in the fall. It can't be done by uh, reflex. Continuing the, the stupid quote from Kant, the more a cultivated reason applies itself with deliberate purpose to the enjoyment of life and happiness. Got that? The more a cultivated reason 
like that of John Galt or Howard Rourke or Ayn Rand herself. The more cultivated reason applies itself with deliberate purpose to the enjoyment of life and happiness, so much the more does the man fail of true satisfaction. And there naturally arises, if you try to do that, quote, hatred of reason, especially in the case of those who are most experienced in the use of it. They find that they have, in fact, only brought more trouble on their shoulders rather than gained in happiness. You want to use your mind to question the Fuhrer's orders? You're going to fail. The individual mind is helpless to know real reality. You're going to be uh, frustrated, unhappy. Let's see if we did I. Yeah, okay. Now, this is exactly the wording of Pope Innocent III writing in about 1200. They don't have an exact date here, but it's before he became Pope when he was a cardinal, and we know he became Pope in 1198. Here's what he says. Man indulges in an infinite variety of business and occupations, yet the end result is the same for all, labor and affliction of mind. The wise men see, search out and investigate the high heavens, the wide earth, and the deep sea. They dispute about all of them. They write about each of them. They are always learning and teaching. What is the result of all these occupations, if not labor and sorrow and affliction of spirit? The writer of the following lines knew this well by experience, a quote from the Bible. I applied my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Exactly what our boy Manny is saying here. Kant's first name is Emmanuel. Now, he gives two examples of what his ethics means in practice, where you have a duty, not a duty based on reason, not a duty based upon values, not a duty based upon what will happen when you do your duty, but a duty that's just guaranteed by pure logic without experience, without the world, without who you are, to be obeying the law of consistency or something. To be, but now this is the, the examples of what it means. To be beneficent, you know, charitable, giving, to be beneficent when we can is a duty. And besides this, there are many minds so sympathetically constituted that without any other of vanity or self-interest, they find a pleasure in spreading joy around them and can take delight in the satisfaction of others so far as their own work. But I maintain 
that in such a case, an action of this kind, however proper, however amiable it may be, has nevertheless no true moral worth. He goes on to say, on the other hand, no, that's not the quote, sorry. He goes on to say, after that example, that if a person is so troubled in his own life and his own soul that he can't summon up any sympathy for the plight of others, and he doesn't care at all what happens to them, but he makes himself act charitably, then his action has moral worth. Then he's acting from duty, not just in accordance with duty. Now, how do you know um, that you're acting from duty that uh, you do something like you give money to charity? Did I do that because I like thinking of myself as a charitable person or I like seeing people better off? Or did I do it just because I've got them? And I would do it anyway, even if I didn't get any pleasure out of it. How do you determine that? You can't. You can't. It is absolutely impossible to be certain that you acted from duty, not from inclination. You have a chance of being more than 50-50 on it if you act against every living impulse in you. If you torture yourself, if you engage in self-denial, it's likely that you didn't do it for some personal motive. But he says, when you look inside, you always find, quote, the dear self as the spring of action. And in fact, his, well, so this is a counsel, go out and hurt yourself because you have a chance of maybe it not being done for your own happiness, but out of duty. Uh, but his own theory of human action, I have to back up a second. There are two realities for consciousness that were for Plato. He's a Platonist. There's the world of appearances, the physical world, the world where there's a computer screen in front of me and a microphone and a camera and all that. That's just the way things appear to be, not the way they really are. And then there's the noumenal realm, the realm of Chicago as it is in itself, not Chicago as reached by this route or that route or this means of transportation, that Chicago pure or anything pure without any means of knowing it. So if you have no means of knowing it, the noumenal world reality as it really is, is unknowable. And he says that quite explicitly. Okay. Well, it turns out you have a noumenal self. There's a person inside you that's your real self, but you can't be aware of it because when you try to introspect and know yourself, that's just yourself as you appear to yourself. 
just like when I look out the window, that's not a pond out there. That's the appearance of a pond. The pond as it is in itself, if there even is such a thing, is forever impossible for me to know. So in the same way, when I look within and say, why did I do that? Did I do that because, you know, secretly it will make me happy? There's a noumenal self. There's your real self, which you cannot get in touch with. You cannot know. For the same reason, there's a real pond and you cannot know it. But there's an apparent self. There's a self as it appears to the self. And that's the phenomenal ego, the phenomenal self, the self that it appears to you, you are. Free will applies to the noumenal world and the noumenal self has free will and it is what has to obey the phenomenal self you as you appear to yourself is deterministic it has no choice so in fact we its motives are happiness and life and well-being and enjoyment and all those disgusting material, non-impure things that he hates. So the self on one level, the self you know is always rotten. It always acts from inclination, never from duty. Duty is the voice of the noumenal self. Insofar as the only thing that he allows can get through from the noumenal world, from reality as it really is, past your senses and past any uh, uh, categories of the understanding, as he calls it, is a sense of duty. Yeah, I know there are things I've got to do. I don't want to do them, but I know I feel it. Now, of course, he was a German, and Germans do feel that if they have gone along with the indoctrination they got as children from mother's knee and Kant doted on his mother who was a Christian pietist. So uh, you feel, oh, I'm no good and there are things I should do. You can help but break that and act on your uh, uh, self-interest. You can't help but be selfish. Everybody is selfish on the level of the phenomenal self. But you got to make your noumenal self do it from duty. Well, how can you do that? You can't, but the best shot at trying and raise you up a, a, a rung in hell is hurt yourself. Suffer, lose, die, torture yourself. And then there's some chance that this, the dear self, the phenomenal self, has been overpowered by the noumenal self, the sense of duty. So as Ayn Rand describes it, it's a ethics of self-torture. She wrote in Atlas Shrugged about uh, the ethics of death, which altruism is, the morality of death. Death is the goal that altruism sends you towards because it's a sacrifice of values and total sacrifice is death. Well, Kant wants death by slow torture. Now, here's the climax. I submit this is the most evil example 
of the most evil philosopher in history. It is a duty to maintain one's life. It is a duty now, not a desire. It is a duty to maintain one's life. And in addition, everyone also has a direct inclination to do so. But on this account, the often anxious care which most men take for it for their lives has no intrinsic worth. And the, their maxim, the principle in which they act, has no moral import. They preserve their life as duty requires, no doubt, but not because duty requires. On the other hand, if adversity and hopeless sorrow have completely taken away the relish for life, if the unfortunate one, strong in mind, indignant at his fate, rather desponding, rather than desponding or dejected, wishes for death, and yet preserves his life without loving it, not from inclination or fear, but from duty, then his maxim has a moral worth. Did you get that? Uh, that is, I, I felt literally nauseated when I read that the first time. If you do things to stay alive, to be a little happy, that even if we admit that suicide is wrong and so you have a duty to stay alive, you don't get any credit for that. That's action from inclination, even though it's in accordance with it. But if you want to die, but make yourself go on living because the Fuhrer wants you to, because it's your duty, then your action is moral work. Obedience without any gain whatsoever grants more work. But even then, in the end, we know that the dear self is beneath it somehow. Now let's close with something more, not more, totally positive, Ayn Rand in Galt's speech. Well, this first one is not. The first one is, is not from Galt's speech. The widespread, quoting, the widespread fear and or resentment of morality, the feeling that morality is an enemy, a musty realm of suffering and senseless boredom, is not the product of mystic, ascetic, or Christian codes as such, but a monument to the ugliest repository of hatred for life, man, and reason, the soul of Immanuel Kant. I said I would end on a positive. That's just positive by implication. Here's the positive from Galt's speech. The purpose of morality is to teach you not to suffer and die, but to enjoy yourself and live. Thank you. I will see if there's any questions in the chat that are, uh, Daniel, that are on this. Yeah, I see one right there. Are you put them up? Yeah. So I, I hope, you, you know, it sinks in. Living is only acceptable if you hate it and want to die. Um, Ryan, 
says, hello, I've discussed Kant with the friend who does not consider him evil, rather worthy of considering. Well, of course, unless you've been guided by Ayn Rand, you're not going to get it. That's I conclude that you have to study Rand well to have a reference point for Kant's evil. And your opinion is this true? Not that you have to, but if you're not a professional philosopher who has devoted, I, I wouldn't say years, but you probably need three months uh, yeah, I think you, you do need the help of a good secondary source, and there's none better than the title, I say, for the new intellectual, uh, where she takes up Kant and disposes of him in a way that no one ever has before. And um, you can get a leg up, though, in, in just a day. And I recommend you do this. You read. Fundamental Principles of the Metaphysics of Morals by I Can't. It's short. I don't know if you can see it, and, and you don't need to, although you it would help to go through. It's 70 pages, approximately. And that's where I got the quotes about if you want to live you get no credit for it. If you don't want to live, if you would rather die, if you hate living, oh, then you're a good, you go on living, you're a good person. That's right in there. It has two examples. If you like helping people, you get no credit. If you don't like helping people, but you make yourself do it, you get credit. Equal to realities asks, what is the best method of learning content? What he actually says. And is he even worth learning for someone who's not a professional philosopher? Professional philosopher, I think you mean. Well, no, he is not worth learning in any detail, but it's very good to have some acquaintance with him. And other major philosophers. Now I have a, um, a definite view on this on how to study historical philosophers that is not common. And I think it's very good. And I wonder if I should save that for next time. Um, <clears throat> I've seen equal to reality's name before. So next time is ask me anything. Why don't we start off with that? Because that's a really interesting question. How do you study these philosophers? And is it worth it? Uh, so I will answer that at the as the first question next time, next Monday. Uh, it'll be a different time in the U.S., but the same time in the U.K. Uh, we go through our daylight savings time and this weekend, and the U.K. has already done so. Thank you very much. I look forward to tackling that and any other questions you have next Monday. Bye for now.